0: Hello, and welcome to Optimal the Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you, to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and also make sure to go over to OptimalDx.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Optimal, the podcast. And this month, we're going to be diving into an important topic, andropause. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But basically, we're going to be looking at low testosterone syndrome in our male patients. And I am joined as always by Beth Ellen DeLulio. Hey, Beth. Hey, hey. How -hmm. are things? Great. Thank you. Well, Beth has done a tremendous job with a white paper on andropause. And we want to just kind of cover, there's obviously way too much that we can cover on the podcast. We just want to sort of hit the highlights. And as always, you can go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. A lot of the content that we talk about on the podcast is referred to in blog posts where we have exhaustive evidence-based research that Beth has done on the topics. So please go over there, optimaldx.com forward slash blog. If you like our podcast, please do subscribe. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, and we're on Google. So you can join us there as well. So this term and reports, Beth, you and I were talking off- microphone a few minutes ago. It's a term that's, I think it's a decent term, but I think Mm -hmm. it does need to be sort of explained. As you pointed out, actually andropause as a term is used to describe decreased testicular production of testosterone with subsequent decreases in serum levels. Technically true andropause is caused by loss of testicular function due to disease, accidents, or therapeutic castration. Now for most men, that's probably enough to say, ah, I don't like that term. So some of the other terms, why don't we talk about a few of those other terms that mm-hmm. you kind of came up with? I personally like low T syndrome, low testosterone syndrome as a description, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the terms and maybe the preferred term that you saw in research and literature.
1: Yeah, after digging to dig it out. Well, there are quite a few that did finally come up with and say that the preferred term was late onset hypogonadism or LOH. But it can be called adult male hypogonadism, aging male syndrome, androgen decline in aging male. So that was ADAM, A-D-A-M. Which is an
0: appropriate term, I think.
1: Male climactic, male senescence. I hadn't heard much of that, but some mm-hmm. people were using that term. I mentioned that it's out there. Partial androgen deficiency in the aging male, which is P-ADAM. Symptomatic late onset hypogonadism. Again, T-deficiency syndrome, low T-syndrome, testosterone deficit syndrome. And I did find one viral
0: pause. So there were a lot of terms. yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's talk a little bit about that. And again, we were talking a little bit offline. This concept, I think, between the allopathic manual definition of Mm -hmm. hypergonadism, i.e., when a medical doctor that maybe isn't tuned into functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, things like that, this concept of trending towards a particular condition and trying to deal with something early on, they may not be aware that there is a whole realm out there. There's a whole subset of male population probably in their late thirties all the way through to eighties and nineties that are dealing with a lot of the signs and symptoms associated with low testosterone. And it's very real for them. And we'll talk a little bit about Ways that we can work with them before resorting to testosterone injections Mm -hmm. and aromatase inhibitors and things like that. So, on one hand, we have the allopathic community that has a very preconceived definition of what hypogonadism is. So, going back to the old nightmare of yet, a man walks into the clinic, he's 45, 50 years old, maybe putting on a little bit of weight, feeling a little run down. And we'll go through some of the symptoms of this in a moment. Sits down, has had his uh, male hormones done. And let's say he's at a 450 total testosterone. At that point, you or I, or some of the other functional medicine practices might go, mm, it's a little lower than we would like to see in a 45 mm-hmm. to 50 year old male. For the medical doctor, they're going, well, you haven't quite got... Uh, not yet. <laughs> not yet. So we're not going to do anything for you, but maybe in a year's time when we test it again, you might get in a little closer. So that's the whole nightmare of yet syndrome. Whereas I think, again, we'll talk about this towards the end of the podcast. Is like There's tons of things that we can do to kind of boost the systems and really also identifying what are some of the things that are in the way that might be leading to this that have nothing to do with testosterone, nothing to do mm-hmm. with the testicles. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the allopathic concept. And on the other hand, we've got on the far end of the other spectrum, we've got the sort of the bodybuilders that want to inject themselves with uh, fake testosterone for all of the added benefits that it gives them more muscle mass to lift more. And then in the middle, we have our functional medicine. <laughs> community that Mm -hmm. is really about increasing the optimal health and well-being of our patient population and recognizing that for many people, and again, we'll go through the symptoms in a moment, sorry to keep delaying that, but they are dealing with some very real issues in their lives on a symptomatic perspective. And I think the other thing to recognize is that for some men, the thought of being on testosterone is somehow challenging their masculinity. So we have a whole nother subset that we have to deal with and work through. So it's not as cut and dried as like maybe, oh, I don't know. I don't even know if thyroid replacement is cut and dried, but there's a lot of baggage associated with it. Mm -hmm. Anyway. More psychological stress, right? Yeah. Intervention. So we talked about, I mean, maybe we could just jump right into, first of all, let's do a little tiny bit of background. What is testosterone? Mm -hmm. So it's a steroid androgen hormone, all steroid hormones. Are built on a cholesterol backbone, so it's synthesized mm-hmm. from cholesterol. I think some of the important pieces to remember, especially in the conversations that we're about to have, is that circulating testosterone is found in three different forms. So around sixty to seventy percent is bound tightly. So this is a tightly bound to sex hormone binding globulin (SHBG). Thirty to forty percent is bound loosely to albumin, and two to three percent is then in the free, unbound, active form. So only about two to three percent is available to do the metabolic work, I would say, did you find out, Beth, whether the loosely bound is able to do some metabolic work or is it mostly? Well, it's easily
1: dissociated from albumin and then it's free to do the work. So I don't think it does much while it's bound to albumin, but as needed, it's freely dissociated from albumin. And there are a couple of the binding proteins, but usually it's the free unbound and the loosely bound that you can consider the bioavailable testosterone
0: yeah so if you've been using our software program we use and we'll talk about this in a few moments as ways that you can actually measure or calculate free testosterone using pretty sp- sophisticated calculation from total testosterone albumin and sex hormone binding globulin. but it also gives you so we have the total testosterone we have the free testosterone there's also the bioavailable testosterone so that's something else that we have to pay attention to So we have the absolute numbers, which are the actual hard numbers in milligrams per deciliter or nanomoles per liter or whatever it is that they're measuring it in. Mm -hmm. And then we have percentages. So percentages are sort of the ratios, like 60 to 70% should be bound to sex hormone binding globulin, 30 to 40% should be bound loosely to albumin, two to three is free. So those are sort of the ratios that we're looking at. Testosterone Mm -hmm. is under regulation from luteinizing hormone and for stimulating hormone as well. So Mm -hmm. pituitary. Hormones are very much involved in stimulating the testicles to produce testosterone. So it's not just about the testicles, folks. It's also about the pituitary <laughs> um, and then the hypothalamus being involved there as well. What is the prevalence? And again, Beth, maybe you could talk a little bit about this. I'm presuming that the prevalence data that you provide mm-hmm. is probably more sort of more the allopathics type of data. When well,
1: um, there are tight cutoffs. yeah. I'm yeah. Sorry. Well, it depends on the cutoff you use. There was some research suggested that maybe 39% of men over 45 years of age or older could have a testosterone of 300 nanograms per deciliter mm-hmm. or less. And that's a level that's associated with reduced bone mineral density. Mm-hmm. So again, now, if you see that level, it should be investigated further, even without a diagnosis of andropause or LOH, mm-hmm. but the prevalence when they're really tight, you know, and that really tight clinical EMAS, which is a European male aging study, when they use those really tight guidelines and the prevalence they thought was maybe only 2.1%, but it did increase as BMI increased and comorbidities increased and Mm -hmm. even as age increased. So the prevalence, those numbers don't matter to somebody that comes into the clinic and says, I don't feel good and my testosterone is 350, please do something. So the really tight clinical determination makes it sound like it's a lower prevalence but yes when you actually look at how people are feeling what are the symptoms maybe they just need some weight loss and the testosterone is a little bit low well let's consider that an issue and deal with it instead of waiting for the official allopathic diagnosis but Mm -hmm. prevalence could be as low as 2.1 percent if you only use the emas guidelines Mm -hmm. but again it does go up not only with bmi because of course bmi can be muscle But with BMI, that is reflecting abdominal obesity. That was a biggie. Abdominal obesity was a big cause. Andropause, a late onset hypogonadism. So again, we would see somebody say, you know what? Let's get you down about 10 or 20 pounds. Even 10% weight loss was helpful. Let's deal with that first. And then if the testosterone bounced back and the symptoms improved, they don't even have to think about testosterone therapy, whether or not they fell into that tight clinical diagnostic criteria.
0: Gotcha.
1: So prevalence depends (laughs) how tight are the guidelines and how old is the person, what are the comorbidities and things like that.
0: Did you think that 300 nanograms per deciliter was kind of a common cutoff for a lot of these geographically related studies that you looked at?
1: Well, that was a little bit lower than the EMAS, right? Because they're saying, you know, you have to, if you see a total testosterone, again, this is total testosterone below 320. they set and or free testosterone below 64 picograms per ML in that case and three sexually related symptoms then you know or you can pretty much suspect that it's loh the 300 in this case where they thought well maybe this 39 percent of men 45 years and they older have below 300 that's pretty low Yeah, yeah and so they're saying though there are plenty of men with that lower level check them out see if they have symptoms see if they have abdominal obesity, see if they have some of the other comorbidities or causes of LOH, and then go from there. So that 300 was a little tight. It's a little bit lower than what the EMAS said that you can
0: use for a cutoff. Mm -hmm. Let's jump ahead a little bit, and then we can kind of come back to sort of testosterone regulation and looking at potentially some of the culprits for why men might have lower levels. I did want to jump into some of the screening questionnaires. You haven't had to do this probably because you're not a man, (laughs) but you haven't gone to some of the the male testosterone clinic websites and looking at the questionnaires, but there is the androgen deficiency in aging males or the ADAM questionnaire. And so these are some of the questions that you probably should be asking, probably would be on a good questionnaire. Selfless plug here, we are working on a signs and symptoms analysis Mm -hmm. for the Optimal DX software. So part of it will include... Ways for us to be able to identify symptomatic changes in our male patients according to some of these criteria. So, one of the first questions that was always asked do you have a decrease in libido and sex drive? And so, for some people, that is a very prevalent issue and it's oftentimes accompanied with erectile dysfunction, but not always. And I would probably extend that sex drive concept to a real drive for life. Are you waking Mm -hmm. up in the morning on a sense of purpose? Because for the masculine, person, that's a really important thing. It's like having this sense of drive, having a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Do you have a lack of energy? So again, it's a question of, well, let's talk about what you were like in your late twenties or maybe your early thirties. And now you're in your mm-hmm. early fifties. Is there a real difference in energy levels? Do you have a decrease in strength and or endurance? Again, we're looking for trends here. So if you're at the gym, you might be able to still lift the same amount of weight, but the reps that you can do are decreasing, right? You can't mm-hmm. lift that weight 10 times the way that you did maybe a year ago. That's important. Do you have a loss of height? And I think that also ties into that question that you were talking about is bone density. Mm-hmm. Men do lose, I think it's in the spine, right, Beth? They tend to get
1: lumbar spine, lumbar yeah, spine
0: shorter density. disc space and things like that. Have you noticed decreased enjoyment of life? I mean, I think that's too, it's really important for a lot of men. They walk around just not really feeling very happy. Do you feel sad and grumpy? Are your erections less strong? Have you noticed a recent deterioration in your ability to play sports? Do you fall asleep after dinner? Well, I mean, that could be something other than just testosterone, but uh, has there been a recent deterioration in work performance? So I would summarize this up as like, you've lost a little bit of your vim and vigor. You've lost a little bit of your pep in your step. You've lost a little bit of strength. You've lost a little bit of your potential sexual passion and drive. And I think if that's happening symptomatically, then I think it's very appropriate to do a deep dive into blood biomarkers. So that would be looking at sex hormone binding globulin, do total testosterone level. We can actually calculate the free testosterone from that and Mm -hmm. give you the bioavailable as well. might be worth doing an LH and FSH to see what the testicular stimulation is like, right? So if, if the LH is really high, then it's sort of waiting around to stimulate the testicles to mm-hmm. produce testosterone if it's really really low which you'll often see in, in patients that are supplementing with testosterone because so much testosterone floating around there's no we need that. yeah the it's like the thermostat the, the thermostat is shut off fsh is another one that you could look at you could also look at cholesterol levels i think would be very important and again we'll talk about some of those biomarkers later
1: I'd like to, if you don't mind, mention too that with those symptoms, of course, you want to make sure you're ruling out other causes of those symptoms. Absolutely. And that's in the paper we'll have. But also I wanted to mention too, erectile dysfunction could be an early sign, a warning sign of cardiovascular disease. So it always does warrant a workup for sure. And maybe a full workup, full blood chem, functional blood chem analysis in case it's a sign of endothelial dysfunction and cardiovascular disease.
0: I remember reading this paper a long time ago and the premise of the paper was one of the things that we noticed is that they talk about normal aging. So, oh, it's, you know, when you're in your 40s and 50s, it's normal for your testosterone levels to decline. And so the premise of this paper, and again, I wish I could find it, but he was talking about, well, if our male patients, we'll talk about male patients here, if they're getting problems with atheromas in their coronary arteries, coronary arteries are pretty big. Imagine that, Every artery in your body, every capillary in your body is is under the same stress. Mm -hmm. So why on earth are we not suspecting that maybe the capillaries that are bringing blood into the adrenal glands or even to the testicles or the pituitary are not also suffering from that? So I think your point being, yeah, early warning signs of cardiovascular disease. And again, that's a real opportunity to do a full and thorough blood chemistry. It's the very first thing you should be doing but also doing probably an NMR, lipoprofile, you know, make a fatty acids and things like that. Any other lab testing that you think of?
1: Well, the whole, I just want to mention too, the lab evidence of the LOH was only found and we starting with just total testosterone, right? So I would always start with that. That could be part of a general screening. But it was only low in 4.7 of symptomatic individuals when they didn't have a comorbidity. Mm. But it was in 79% of symptomatic individuals who had comorbidities. So I do think the screen, I think a total testosterone screening could be the first step, and then right. go on and see how much further you want to go with the testosterone levels free or bioavailable. And then also look at assess them for insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes or full diabetes. And go further, and that would be a full blood chem analysis. Why shouldn't that mm-hmm. be the first screen? Absolutely. Uh, then go further with the specifics, like the FSH and the LH if you had to. And there are some guidelines we'll have in the blogs as to whether it's looking like primary hypogonadism or secondary hypogonadism. And obesity is a big, big cause of secondary gonadism. So when you see the patient... And you know they need to lose 30, 40, or 50 pounds, especially if it's abdominal obesity. That's the first clue that they're going to need some lifestyle intervention right. before even looking at all the other blood work. So I think the screening testosterone and then get further into the hormones if you have to after the full blood chem screen. Because if they're at risk for metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, then they're at risk for andropause and LOH. So I think that the whole gambit that we can do with a functional blood analysis is going to Apply here,
0: Mm -hmm. and I think it's so funny because as you were talking, it's like we oftentimes approach these topics by themselves, right? Oh, we'll look at menopause, we'll look at andropause, we look at oxidative stress, we look at inflammation. They're all connected. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just everything you just said: insulin resistance, blood sugar regulation, cardiovascular disease, low testosterone. Then you can expand it out into some of the inflammatory markers: high levels of serum ferritin, high levels of iron low levels of vitamin D, low levels of vitamin K. And all of a sudden you've got a pretty large syndrome of multi-body systems starting to not function optimally that is causing a lot of these issues that our patients are suffering from. So I think it's that like is... It's like
1: if you have one flat tire, but you say, hey, I have three good tires. What's the problem? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. I drive down the road, I only have one
0: flat tire. Yeah, that's so true. So that's why we do stress, hey, listen, if you've got a needle in your patient's arm it's not going to take that much more to get a two or three more vials so that mm-hmm. you can do a thorough hormone analysis or you can do that NMR profile, or you can do mm-hmm. the C-peptide to go along with your fasting glucose so that you can get your HOMA score. And again, I think the nice thing about the software that we have right now is that we are using the vermulin calculation and we'll mention that in the article here. But that is a way to actually be able to calculate free testosterone because free testosterone is one of those really weird biomarkers mm-hmm. It's variable from lab to lab. LabCorp has their own ranges. Quest has their own ranges. I know up in Canada, they have their own ranges. Well, let's get rid of all of that. Let's calculate it. It's very, very clinically proven to be very accurate way of getting these numbers. And again, that's worked out from albumin, sex hormone binding, globulin, and total testosterone. So plug those three into the software and we will give you percent free testosterone. We'll give you free testosterone, absolute. We'll give you bioavailable. We'll give you percent bioavailable. Lots of great information there to start really building up on your case.
1: I'm going to say too, if you don't mind, like if someone just goes into a testosterone clinic, let's say, and all they do is look at testosterone, and you have someone with quote unquote pre-diabetes in front of you or insulin resistance, and they're never testing that. If they just Mm. go to those clinics and they're not doing a full assessment, they're not going to pick up on these comorbidities. So they won't even testosterone alone isn't going to solve all these comorbidities. So yeah, it's really a disjointed way to look at it if they're only looking at testosterone levels we have to look at what else is going
0: on right so i want to talk just a little bit about somewhat the regulation and then we'll dive into some of the biomarkers and then ultimately we'll finish up with hey so let's say you suspect that your patient's dealing with this low testosterone syndrome whatever you want to call it what are some of the things that we can do in the clinic with the patient with all the tools that we have available to us before maybe resorting to some of the more heroic arotase inhibitors and mm-hmm. injectable. Okay. But first, what we'll talk about is serum testosterone, testosterone at their maximum between age 25 and 30. And so have you noticed, if you ever looked at a quest or a lab core, they give you the ranges of total testosterone and free testosterone across ages, right? Mm-hmm. So it is quote unquote normal for a 75-year-old to have a way less testosterone than a 25 25- to 30 year old. So is that normal? Exactly or is that observed. <laughs> yeah. An observed decline after the age of 40 has traditionally been attributed to quote unquote normal aging. So again, I would challenge that presumption of what mm-hmm. normal aging really is. So however, more contemporary research suggests that annual age related decline is no more than 0.5% or less in healthy men. So the point of that research article was LOH or low testosterone syndrome is not simply a phenomenon of aging. So let's look at the regulation. So we talked a little bit about the hypothalamus, talked a little bit about the pituitary. Physiologically, if we have a low serum testosterone, it could be associated, like you said, with some of these comorbidities, but let's look at it through the lens of the neuroendocrine system. Could be a decrease in hypothalamic gonadotropin releasing hormone, GRH. So disruptions in androgenic negative feedback systems or possibly a decrease in sensitivity and responsiveness of testicular tissue. So we're not talking necessarily here about Testosterone insensitivity or testosterone resistance, you're talking here about the testicular tissue becoming insensitive to luteinizing hormone. So that could be happening and we don't necessarily know. So there are a lot of these physiological reasons. And that's why if you go to my training programs or some of these other training programs that people do, we need to look at the functional physiology. We need to have a real understanding of how our bodies evolve to function so we have the hypothalamus, we have the pituitary, we have the testicles. It's a whole interconnected system that we have to pay attention to. And so there are, of course, many reasons why someone's pituitary might not be functioning properly. I mean, I think probably the top one would be stress. So we all know that we're under a tremendous stress in the 21st century, mm-hmm. not COVID notwithstanding. And it's not surprising that potentially we have a low output from anterior pituitary. We see it in the thyroid hormone as well.
1: All balance, you know, all balance. Yeah. People have to look a balance.
0: There are metabolic disorders associated with chronic inflammation, diabetes, as you mentioned, cardiovascular disease, obesity, all of which may reduce serum testosterone by a factor of 1.5 to 3.6, as you pointed out in one of the studies. Mm-hmm. Also, acute conditions can reduce testosterone temporarily. So stroke, myocardial infarction, gallbladder surgery, head trauma, and all of that type of stuff.
1: So that's what they want, repeated measures too. If somebody has a low testosterone, you got to repeat it usually within 30 days, two weeks to 30 days, 30 days is preferable. And it's got to be a fasting. And that's the thing, you have to repeat it and not just go on that one testosterone result because it could be an acute condition that reduced it.
0: Great segue. Let's talk about biomarkers here then, shall we? <laughs> Lab testing. So great. That's a good observation. So one of the things you pointed out in the blog post, it's important to measure total testosterone in the morning as levels peak at that time. So you want to measure, that's why I'm always going, people are always ask me, well, when should I get my patient's blood work done? Unless there is an absolutely overwhelming reason not to do it first thing in the morning, that's what I recommend, do it fasting. Because food intake, glucose can suppress testosterone levels and all of that kind of stuff. We did mention that the ranges for testosterone and free testosterone, more specifically than total testosterone, vary due to lack of standardized assays, calibration variations, differences in reference population. So again, one of the other things to do, try and use the same reference lab, Mm -hmm. if at all possible, over and over and over again. It's going to get much more accurate outputs. Beth, what else can we talk about?
1: Identify the mean normal testosterone in young adults is about 627 nanograms per day. Interesting. Yeah. So they said if it drops more than 2.5 standard deviations below that mean, then that should be hypogonadism, which comes out to 319. <laughs> and wow. the EMAS was 320. So that's about where they got that.
0: And I think a lot of these functional medicine clinics that are looking at this might use slightly different cutoff for mm-hmm. beginning this type of work. I know in the software, our total testosterone levels are relatively high, 700 mm-hmm. to 900 mm-hmm. might be actually a little too high. I think are probably if someone's dropping below 400, alarm bells Definitely should be going off. Up. Yeah. Yes. Between 400 to 600. Yeah. Don't wait. Let's talk about some of the things that we can do to help that person to potentially move their testosterone back up into the seven, 800s. Ideally. We talked a little bit about how you calculate free testosterone using total T's, sex hormone binding globulins, and albumin. Let's talk a little bit about sex hormone binding globulin. I think that's I think a really important measurement because if your testosterone is being bound up, and let's say you have too much sex hormone binding globulin, you may actually have enough testosterone. Mm-hmm. It's just not available to do its metabolic work. That's why I think measuring sex hormone binding globulin is actually really, really important. So what did you find out about some of the reasons why someone's sex hormone binding globulin might be increased or decreased? Obviously, if it's increased, we're going to get a lot more binding happening. We're going to get a lot less free testosterone available, a lot less bioavailable testosterone. So the patient might be experiencing some of these signs and symptoms of low testosterone Mm -hmm. syndrome, but when you actually test them, oh boy, your total testosterone is in the 800s but your sex hormone binding globulin is in the 60s or late 50s, which can be a real problem. So can you talk a little bit about some of the reasons why it might be decreased or increased?
1: Sure. And it really seemed any alteration in sex hormone binding globulin could contribute because it's almost counterintuitive. You see a decreased SHBG with obesity, and obesity is a primary cause of secondary LOH and menopause. Mm-hmm. But it can be decreased with obesity, decreased with liver disease, decreased with insulin resistance, decreased with hypothyroidism, decreased with an excess of growth hormone, decreased with diabetes, decreased with androgen excess, nephrotic syndrome, some polymorphism. So this could be a genetic component there. Some medications like glucocorticoids can decrease SHBG. Other things that can increase it, aging cirrhosis, hepatitis, use of estrogens, elevated estrogen, HIV, hyperthyroidism, and again, some polymorphisms and some anticonvulsants can increase it, which would then increase the bound up testosterone. But it's interesting because again, obesity is associated with low T syndrome. And yet it's a cause of decrease in your sex hormone binding globulin. So again, there's some counterintuitive things that are going on here, but any alteration in SHBG, then they think, well, go ahead and calculate your free testosterone and your bioavailable as
0: well. Right, right, exactly. So the other thing to keep in mind too, is to measure estradiol. I think, again, a lot of male hormone panels are lacking in estradiol. I think it's one of the most important actually Mm -hmm. to measure because one of the things that we notice is that men can convert testosterone into estrogen or estradiol. And that's through aromatase activity. And what is one of the leading causes of aromatase activity is abdominal obesity. So Mm -hmm. the more weight that you have around your abdomen, some people even talk about that as sort of, it's a hormonal tissue in the body, having negative Mm -hmm. impact on estradiol levels. So It's important to make sure that the estradiol levels are measured. If it's too low, that can be a real problem too. I think you mentioned this for bone mineral density. And I think Mm -hmm. that there are issues where people go, oh, estrogen in men is bad. I'm going to be doing a ton of supplements that decrease it. I'm going to take methane, So you're like slowly just Mm -hmm. washing all this estrogen out of your body, which is probably a good thing on some level, but it can go too far. So measuring that really important. But high levels of estradiol is very much implicated in this whole syndrome that we're talking about. Anything from your research around estradiol that you think would be worth mentioning?
1: Well, there was a ratio. When you looked at the ratio of testosterone to estradiol, there were some studies in that. And the lowest testosterone to estradiol ratio had significantly higher C-reactive protein, white blood cell count, atherosclerotic plaque, neutrophils, and other Mm. inflammatory compounds. BMI, risk of major cardiovascular events. And so looking at that ratio actually was a tool that they used in research. So the lowest testosterone to estradiol ratio had more inflammation, basically, in atherosclerotic plaque inflammatory markers. So that seems to be something you could look at as well. And yeah. Calculate. Beth,
0: was that total testosterone to estradiol? Yes. Yeah, we should probably get that into the software. If there can are good the ranges med- for that, yeah, sure we can easily we can. measure it and calculate it. Offline, you and I'll talk a little more about that. Okay. And I know I asked you at some point to do a little reading into the free androgen index, but maybe you could talk about that because I know on some blood tests, they are actually giving the free androgen index as a marker. Did you uncover any information around that?
1: Yeah, you know what I found? It seems to be confirmed that it's really not useful in men because there are so many variations in mm. sex hormone binding globulin, which changes the free androgen index. It was more useful in women, actually, with PCOS. Mm. It says, research has discouraged the use of direct measurement of free T and or calculation of free androgen insects for diagnosing androgen deficiency as neither measurement was a reliable reflection of free T. Wow. So the measurement, you want to calculate free T, and really don't bother calculating free androgen index this hand because it just wasn't useful in men. You're better off looking at the bioavailable and calculating the free, which we, we do in the software, so, yeah, so yes, so it's disappointing because it seemed like it could be an easy tool, easy to calculate. I even found some ranges for it, but <laughs> they're saying, in this case, for men, no, because those alterations in sex hormone binding, especially with age, sex hormone binding globulin would throw the three hundred yeah. index rate off
0: for men, yeah, maybe next month we'll talk about it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: we'll be talking about female sex hormones next mm-hmm. month. So I think the important things to remember when we're talking about biomarkers is is that lab reference ranges differ. So being clear that if you're using Quest, try and continue to use Quest on your patients. Uh, If you're using LabCorp, try and use LabCorp. We will calculate the free testosterone. So in some ways, you can save your patients a little money by not actually buying a free testosterone. We'll actually measure it. And in some cases, even labs will give you that as a biomarker and it'll say measured or calculated. Include the sex hormone binding globulin because part of that calculation is sex hormone binding globulin and total testosterone and albumin. Run an estradiol. Any other biomarkers that you think? I mean, I know that sometimes people are running progesterone levels because progesterone levels, decreased progesterone levels in men can be, you know, they can contribute to symptoms that they might have. You could be running pregnenolone. Definitely take a look at cholesterol levels. Some theories being, oh, Cholesterol levels are decreased because someone's on a statin drug. How on mm-hmm. earth are they going to be making their steroid hormones in the first place? But also there's some theory, and you've done a lot more research into cholesterol than I have. There's some theories that maybe even a high high cholesterol level is somehow compensating for steroid hormone deficiencies. Does that ring a bell? Not,
1: not in all cases, but I had seen that because your body's trying to push that production Oh, maybe there's a conversion issue. You know, you get all plenty of cholesterol, but you're not converting it into pregnenolone and down the line in testosterone. So it could be a conversion issue too. And they see with the statins. My understanding is they only inhibit the production of cholesterol at the liver. So maybe there are other tissues that could pick up and produce cholesterol. So I never found, and I didn't go really dig deep into it, but an absolute, like, listen, if you're low when somebody's says t- cholesterol in their blood, they're not going to have enough left to make testosterone. I haven't found that connection. But I would say for conversion issues, yeah, you might be producing. And same thing with vitamin D. With low vitamin D, cholesterol would increase. And then people would either take vitamin D or get exposed to sunlight and the cholesterol will come down. So as a precursor, people have to remember that it's a precursor for so many important things. If it's elevated, find out why. And if it's low, are you then going to have a reduction in things like testosterone? Because Mm. as we know, it's underappreciated as an important molecule. It's demonized. So I hadn't and find out. It could be a whole
0: nother paper though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so some optimal takeaways from this section is testosterone should be measured in the fasting state in the morning between 7 and 11 a.m. Repeat the test 30 days apart. Symptoms of LOH may persist with normal testosterone levels if sex hormone binding globulin is elevated. And we talked a little bit about that. Free testosterone should be measured using equilibrium dialysis. If that is the format form that you are wanting to actually do a direct measurement of I would actually say using the calculation, using total testosterone, sex hormone, binding globulin, and albumin is probably as effective and definitely more cost effective. And then also the calculations can also give you bioavailable testosterone. And from there too, we can give you percentages as well. All right, Beth, how do we work with this? How do we treat and counteract this issue?
1: Well, you know, always the first thing is deal with the underlying factors. If somebody comes in and you can see, again, abdominal obesity is the first thing that should be treated, really, and addressed and treated. And then you can do the testosterone and repeat it one month apart. And if it is consistently low, you can go further with that. But a thing to do, I think, is to treat the obesity. That's huge. And I don't think people are becoming obese or getting weight on too many almonds and avocados, right? So the <laughs> diet that caused them to become obese is so inflammatory. So right. I'd love to do a study of that. But I would always say it's first line therapy, right? Yeah. Weight, healthy weight loss, not just weight loss, but healthy weight loss and a healthy diet. Again, the Mediterranean style diet came up again and fresh fruits and vegetables and legumes and plant-based foods and healthy protein and healthy fats. That is always going to be step one because if you can clear this up, with just lifestyle changes, also being active and getting enough sleep and all those other things, stress management, you might not have to go any further, right? Mm-hmm. And then with a the functional blood chemistry analysis, you can see the progression and the improvement in levels of total testosterone and we're calculating free testosterone, et cetera. So right. to see that those come up nicely and symptoms might be relieved and they lost 20 pounds and inflammatory markers have come down. That's what you want to see, not just the testosterone levels. you know? Yeah,
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that is the great thing about the comprehensive blood chem tests and then using a functional Mm -hmm. health report like we generate from the software can be so helpful, not only in seeing actual individual biomarker levels change. I love that historical report or even the comparison Mm -hmm. report can give you that changes over time. But then we take it a step further and we're looking at patterns and interrelated aspects. We can see the male sex hormone body system score going down. We can see blood sugar dysregulation scores going down. We see cardiovascular scores going down. That is great when you see that Mm -hmm. and you can sit down with the patient and go, this is what you were like six months ago Mm -hmm. after the work that we've done, the work that you have done, empowering them to take a huge part of their treatment protocol Mm -hmm. and look what's happening. And then tying in that symptomology, maybe going back through some of those symptoms that we talked about earlier even quantifying rather than yes or no, maybe it's a zero through four scale. Mm -hmm. And you actually can start seeing that the symptom burden goes down. That's why I'm really looking forward to getting signs and symptoms analysis in there as well, because that's the patient subjectively reporting what they're experiencing. And it's not just necessarily the blood value. So anyway, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's talk a little bit about the naturopathic nutritional approach, and then we'll close this out and I'll, I'll kind of go through some of the more allopathic approaches, because those definitely still on the table for those patients that maybe this doesn't work for, Mm -hmm. or maybe this isn't getting them all the way there. And that I think it is important to remember that that's available. They might have to work with their medical physician or an appropriate physician Mm -hmm. who's qualified to do that. But let's talk a little bit about lifestyle. We've talked a little bit about that. Let's talk a little about diet, nutrition, some of the findings that you found.
1: I thought it was really interesting because, again, look at what else is going on with the patient. Do they have any of these other cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, excess inflammation? Those increase the risk of having LOH, the andropause, by a factor of 1.5 to 3.6. So you're increasing your risk of getting it, right? So you mm-hmm. might as well address it early on. And of course, a BMI of thirty or greater increases the risk of LOH by a factor of thirteen. Wow. So you definitely wanna address these lifestyle consequences with lifestyle intervention. So yep. these are definitely modifiable risk factors. And in intensive lifestyle changes, the diabetes prevention program showed that, that they increased their total testosterone levels with intensive lifestyle changes. The Patients have lost weight and they intervened with lifestyle changes and they increased the testosterone that way without testosterone therapy because it does have its drawbacks, we're going to mention in the papers, and it has the risks and there are contraindications. So if they do find that it is possible to increase endogenous production of testosterone You need a healthy lifestyle, treat sleep apnea if it's Mm -hmm. present, or make sure people are getting healthy amounts of sleep, continuous sleep. Look at interfering medications, see if these are really things they have to be on or not. And then weight loss is a big thing. Again, abdominal obesity calls for a weight loss program and a healthy weight loss program. You know, sometimes they're very strict, severe interventions that I don't think are healthy weight loss programs. It should always be a lifestyle change and I did find it interesting that the lemon mnemonic... Yeah,
0: I was thinking um, about that. It would be yeah, good to talk Yeah, remember
1: about. that. L-E-M-O-N, lifestyle, endocrine, medical and metabolic, observer-induced or iatrogenic, what's going on, that could be causing this from the outside, and then nutritional. So L-E-M-O-N is something to keep in mind for anything, not just for the hypogonadism that we're talking about today.
0: Cool. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, when we do these podcasts, a lot of it is they're not all the same, but there's so many common denominators here. a mm-hmm. Mediterranean style diet, lots of fruits and vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts, seeds, herbs, spices. It's decreasing your alcohol or no alcohol, increasing your physical activity, adding fiber into your diet, mm-hmm. reducing your weight. I mean, all of these things are going to have a tremendous impact and implication on this one particular area we're focusing on today, which is the male Sex hormone dysfunction. Anything else that stood out from you that maybe is more of something that outside of the usual conversation that you and I have? Is there any particular food or is there any particular nutrient that caught your attention?
1: Well, there was there's a little bit about toxins and pesticides and pollutants. If you can go organic, go organic because pesticides can be endocrine disruptors, so can phthalates from plastics. But as far as individuals, like phytonutrients, these plant-based chemicals or phytochemicals or phytonutrients only come from plant-based foods, right? So that's one of the reasons to increase plant-based foods. But they had some very specifics. There were anthocyanin from berries, currants, grapes, tea, tropical fruits and wine, a little bit of wine, abigenin and luteolin, Flavones were found in celery, parsley, and thyme. Catechin flavonoids were found in apples, red wine, and tea. Chrysin flavonoids were in chamomile, fruit bark, honey, mushrooms, propolis, and other plant extracts. Narigenin and hesperidin flavones were found in citrus and plums quercetin, mericitin, and camphorol flavonols were found in apples, berries, broccoli, cherries, onions, and tea. Right. So those are your food-based, yeah, your food-based phytochemicals. And again, it's a general, just a wide variety of, especially vegetables, but a couple of fruits a day from berries and citrus and things like that. You got to incorporate these into your diet and people have got to get used to doing that. You got to buy it first to put it in the fridge right. and then make it visible. So when you reach in the fridge, you grab it whatever little trick it takes or have a lunch box that you pack, even if you're staying home and you have to eat these two fruits and these three vegetables are your absolute minimum for tomorrow. And then on top of that, I have like at a salad and some other things, but it's a matter of habits. We can tell them all day long. I can put it down on paper. They can read about it. But if you don't pick it up at the store, or the farmer's market and you don't put it in the fridge, you don't grab it. It doesn't work, right? It's got to be ingested. So those are your food sources. And then there was a little bit about medicinal plants. There were three Love that it. were yeah. pretty promising. Yeah, those are phytochemicals again, come from these plant-based compounds. So there was long jack root, seemed to be real promising. Mm-hmm. Fenugreek, which I thought was interesting. Fenugreek, I'd actually heard that in the past. And then there was another one, I kept thinking of trebles that are trouble. Oh, there is tribulus terrestris. Tribulus
0: terrestris, yes.
1: Tribulus and trouble. So those three were more medicinal compounds or plant-based compounds that have medicinal qualities to them. But the foods, food is medicine. If you're not eating plant-based compounds, you're missing a whole category of nutrients. And that's a lot of times, like I said, if somebody has a lot of abdominal obesity, and yes, hops and beer was a plant-based compound. (laughs) Hops counts, right? (laughs) Is that how they got their abdominal obesity? But I'm sure it wasn't from eating too many almonds and avocados. So you got to clear out some of the junk food, not all of it. It has a psychological value to it, but 80% of the diet is real healthy. Maybe 20% could be more junk food. I think people would clear up some of these issues and they have to include those fruits and veggies. That's absolutely step one. There's no question in my mind.
0: So if you go to some of the companies that we're all familiar with, Zymogen, Designs for Health, Metagenics, a lot of these companies will have. Life Extensions, thank you, mm-hmm. will have products that are aimed at naturally helping the body to increase testosterone levels. so you're going to see long jack root, you're going to see mm-hmm. tribulus terrestris you're going to see velvet bean extract, mura puama, you're going to see nettles, you're going to see Sul palmetto, tonkat, ali. So just keep an eye out for those if you're actually evaluating some of those products. That can be really helpful for just giving the body just sort of a natural boost. Fenugreek is another one as well. Conversely, there's a couple of other types of products that you might want to look at that are generally around supporting hormonal balance. A lot of them will include methane. What else? Beth, help me out here. Some of the ones that are helping to clear estrogens out of the body. Well,
1: support you know, detoxification. Detoxification, too, detoxification of the estrogen.
0: Yeah. So yeah, like calcium d
1: Yeah,
0: calcium D-glucarate. <laughs> some of the cruciferous vegetable extracts and things like that. So it's not just about boosting the testosterone levels, obviously. It's Mm -hmm. also about supporting the body's own ability to be able to regulate hormones as well. You can
1: show them the blood work too. You show them the blood work and say, this is why I want you to eat broccoli. This is why I want you to try this herb. This is why, this is why. You show them that blood work and it's so motivating.
0: So we'll end this particular section. There's a nice graphic that Beth found from a research study of targets of testosterone production affected by foods and supplements. So really looking at it from the hypothalamic anterior pituitary perspective then looking at the luteinizing hormone receptor perspective in the testicles with the Leydig cells, and then finally looking at the testosterone to estradiol and trying to control aromatase. So at the level of luteinizing hormones, so GnRH from hypothalamus coming to the anterior pituitary and stimulating the production of luteinizing hormone, we had substances such as garlic, selenium, coq10, resveratrol, l carnitine, vitamin C, oleo European, <laughs> I don't often have problems with words, but oh, for some do. reason I can't <laughs> say that one. And then at the LH receptor, I mean, we could talk about receptors till we're blue in the face uh-huh. here, but lactic acid bacteria, linoleic acid, lipidium, may-, may, may, and Ie, may- uh-huh. and pepperine from black pepper. And then this is an interesting one because this is something that I've had conversations with patients and other people that are interested in how do we naturally control the testosterone to estradiol conversion through how do we naturally sort of control the aromatase activity? Mm -hmm. Well, chrysin is something to pay attention to. That kind of leads into our final discussion here, Beth. I want to talk a little bit about actual testosterone therapy because there are, Again, we could do a whole presentation on the allopathic or the more high-end functional medicine treatment, if you Mm -hmm. look at it that way. So you can actually give people actual testosterone. It can either be in an injectable format, it can be in a transdermal applications, it can be creams and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But one of the issues that happens when you're restoring testosterone that way is that you actually start to cut off the body's natural production. Mm -hmm. you get that biofeedback, the body goes, oh, there's plenty of testosterone, I don't need to put any luteinizing hormone out. So the testicles don't actually get stimulated. Mm -hmm. So one of the major side effects of this from a testosterone perspective is testicular shrinkage. Another side effect is sterility. Because the body's not producing its own testosterone, actual spermatogenesis starts to decrease. So we get testicular shrinkage, we have decrease in spermatogenesis, low sperm count. So Something to consider is looking at the age, whether or not your male patients want to continue having children before Mm -hmm. you begin doing testosterone therapy. Mm -hmm. There are ways to actually stimulate, sort of fake out the body in terms of testicular stimulation, and one of which is using HCG. So you can do HCG injections. Not sure if you were aware of this, Beth, but HCG, the FDA just did a big recategorization of mm. injectable hormones. So HCG used to be a hormone, and therefore all pharmacies, compounding pharmacies, were able to produce very cheaply and effectively produce HCG for injectable format. Then about six months ago, the FDA decided that oh no, HCG is not a hormone; it's a mm. biological, it's a biological compound, and the there are only very, very few pharmacies in the country that are licensed to do biological surgery. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So what ended up happening was a lot of these testosterone clinics started freaking out because the only way that they were at that particular time, the best way for them to preserve a man's natural ability to keep producing their own testicular testosterone was through HCG, which sort of is an LH mimicker. It mimics LH in the body. So they then had to go scrambling around trying to find some other way of doing it. So they came across this substance called gonadurellin, gonadurellin acetate, which is actually a GNRH precursor. So now we're coming, if you imagine we're going back up the steroid hormone sort of regulation process. Before we were mimicking LH, so we were mimicking the relationship between the anterior pituitary and the testicles with HCG. Now we're coming all the way back up again and feeding kind of an analog of GnRH to stimulate LH production in the anterior pituitary. So anyway, just a little side (laughs) on sort of the issues that are affecting the male testosterone clinics. So that's kind of how men can preserve their testicular output of testosterone, reduce testicular shrinkage, maybe even continue to be fertile if they are wanting to continue having a family. Then the other aspect was If you are injecting testosterone, you obviously have, it has a half-life in the body, but levels of testosterone post-injection obviously go way up. So if we're talking like a total testosterone, someone may have a, let's say, a total testosterone of 300 naturally without any testosterone, and they inject it, now their levels for the first maybe day and a half are in the thousands. So if you were to take blood a day after someone's injected themselves, it's going to be like 1,200, 1,500. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening, right, so now you're flooding the body with testosterone. Mm-hmm. You're maybe the person still dealing with abdominal obesity, that aromatase activity is going to be quite high. The tendency then would be for a lot of that testosterone potentially to be bound by SHBG mm-hmm. or be converted into estrogen. So that's why aromatase inhibitors are used in testosterone treatment. So the biggest one would be anastrozole. But there's issues, like you said, if you decrease your estradiol levels too low, mm-hmm. there's major issues with bone density. Men start getting muscle aches and pains because their estradiol level is too low.
1: Well, the hot flashes, I think, it almost made it sound like the estradiol went too low, that the hot flashes could be a symptom of that.
0: Interesting, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, always monitor, especially if somebody's on some kind of therapy, obviously they... They need to be monitored
0: regularly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the take-home message is that if you're on testosterone therapy, if your physician is recommending that and you're already on it and you're taking aromatase inhibitor, maybe you're doing some injectable HCG and you're doing some testosterone, a bare minimum, your lab lab's checked every year, mm-hmm. if not every six months. And then you want to wait. You want to wait at least seven days from your last injection. If you're injecting once a week, you want to wait. So you want to see how is the body responding without a lot of testosterone. Anyway, I mean, it's, again, you know, what are the cutoff? What are the thresholds for even considering doing testosterone therapy? You have to exhaust all of those things that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Deal with the comorbidities that exist. Mm -hmm. Work with the blood sugar regulation. Work with the cardiovascular risk. Work with the obesity. Get them to lose weight. Decrease the BMI. Am I missing anything here?
1: The diet? Yeah,
0: well, yeah, (laughs) then work with them on their diet, definitely making sure that they're getting all of the things that we've talked about and we will include obviously in the the dietary recommendations here. Uh, If that's not working, maybe they're still hovering around that 400 mark. Symptomatic. Yeah. And they're symptomatic. Yeah. And it can make tremendous, I mean, I've talked to guys that have done this and they say their life is completely different. With intervention, with therapy. Yeah. And it can be night and day. And a lot of them, it's interesting, I talked to one guy who was incredibly depressed and went through therapy and was on Prozac and all of those types of... Had they ever
1: tested his testosterone?
0: Nope, nope. Never? Oh my! Goodness. He decided at that point, I think he saw one of those ads on television. Oh my. <laughs> you know, and he was like, wait. I mean, I think it was like one of those bottles of pills that probably has all those herbs that we were just talking about. Yeah. Anyway, so he decided to go and he got his test levels checked. He did the Adam questionnaire. Yeah, pretty much every single one of those things within two to three weeks of testosterone therapy, is said, I am a completely different person. Yeah. So it is real. And for some people it's necessary.
1: It can be debilitating. I mean, yeah,
0: yeah, it can be debilitating. Well, Beth, thank you so much for doing such a great job preparing all of this great information. Like I said, we'll go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. We'll have a lot of this up there. Mm-hmm. Give us a couple of weeks to get it up, but it'll be there. So <laughs>
1: that was no pun intended. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. I <laughs> would well, we'll take that Pretty one out. Any last little words of wisdom that you've picked up or anything that we've missed out? Eat right,
1: exercise and take your multivitamin every day.
0: Yeah, That's exercise. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, Dallas, balance, balance, balance. You got to eat right, sleep right, go outside and play.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Relax, all those important things. I Breathe. think, you know,
0: again, we're looking at this for human beings. There really is sort of default way that we should be living our lives. And I hope with this optimal podcast that we banging this home to you <laughs> every single time, is, it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. And the hard part is getting over ourselves. We can become really good advocates for our patients to take control of their healthcare and shoving a needle and injecting yourself with testosterone is a last resort. Exactly. But, last resort. Yeah. Well, Beth, thanks so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us. I'm Dr. Dickon Weatherby from Optimal DX. If you want to kind of learn more about what we're doing over there at Optimal DX, please come to OptimalDX.com. I also have a training program called FBCA Mastery. We have a nice module on male sex hormones. If you wanted to learn more about how all of these biomarkers work together, come over to the ODX Academy. That's academy.optimaldx.com. And we have a good training program there. We have a certification program. If you want to become certified, we've got a practitioner directory over at OptimalDX.com. We love bringing this information to you. I'm super excited to share this with you and to bring Beth Allen's wonderful research to all of you. Thanks so much and take care.